Well, it's increasingly clear that violent divisions exist all among us. Just a week ago, the, the most strictest measures were put out on us wearing masks, socially distancing. We recognize that those people that were calling us to wear masks were not themselves wearing masks. And then they started wearing masks. And now it's almost like a, a signal in a lot of places. I know some people do need to wear masks, but the extent to which it's going, it seems like it's been eclipsed and shadowed. All of a sudden we see injustice take place over in Minnesota, followed by hordes and hordes of more injustices causing division after division. And this is nothing new. We've seen this throughout time. Uh, Even recognizing that there are people, presumably, as it's been reported, from different states going to different states to help, help these riots along, that is nothing new. You think of Nadab's vineyard, Jezebel, Ahab. All she had to do was find some worthless men, and it wasn't too difficult. Everywhere we look, there are divisions all around us. And divisions in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad. God, at the beginning when he created, he made separations between things. God calls us to separate ourselves from certain things. But the divisions that we're seeing, divisions that are racial, divisions that are political, divisions within certain aspects of society, economic, divisions over preferences, and there's divisions also over doctrine. Division rips at the very fabric of society. Division stifles compassion and tends to turn love into hate. We recognize, some of us have no doubt experienced, that division tears apart families. And division has only one remedy. There is only one solution for these divisions. And it is not education. It is not reparations. It is not being a better listener. It's not identity politics and virtue signaling. No, this solution is found only in the good news of the person of Jesus Christ. And we must be united to him. It's not just enough for us to know about Jesus, but we must be in union and communion with him. We must not find our identity in our Race, technically speaking, there is one race. There is the human race. Or you could argue there's two races. There's Adam, Adam's race, and Christ's race. But what we're talking about is superficial ethnicities, skin colors, features. That's not our identity. Politics, although can be very useful, that's not our identity. Economics, it's not our identity. And shame on us if we make any of these, or even preferences, 
our identity. Our identity is to be found only in the person of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. And as we've been studying through Ephesians chapter 1, we have been seeing these blessings that we've been given in our new identity. Right from verse 1, Paul is writing to the saints at Ephesus, the ones who are believing in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 3, we recognize as we read this morning that we have every spiritual blessing. And none of those blessings are apart from Christ. Every single one of those blessings is because we are in Christ. We recognize as we've been studying through Ephesians that we have been elected, not apart from Christ, not just for Christ, but in Christ. And we have been predestined to adoption as sons, the highest order, the highest office, the highest position, sonship in the family of God. And that was through Christ. So that we would be to the praise of his glory of his grace, which he graced us with in Christ, the beloved one. And as we come back to this section, verses 7 to 12, the son's effectual redemption. When the son sets out to do something, it takes its effect. He is an effectual savior. He is not a potential savior. He didn't come to make us savable. He came to save us. A once for all sacrifice. And to take us out of the dominion of Adam and into Christ, into himself. Verse 7 says, in whom? In this beloved one, beloved of the Father, beloved par excellence. There is none next to him. There is none above him. But by God's grace, we are in him. We have redemption. And so I see it fitting at this time that we begin to look at a study on our union with Christ. We've been talking a lot about our union with Christ and hinting at it here and there. And if you were with us in our Bible studies in the past, we went through some books of the Bible and looked at our union with Christ. But what I would like to do by God's grace is let's help fill this out and let's explain What is this vast doctrine that encompasses every aspect of our salvation? Our union with Christ. We've been seeing it already in Ephesians 1. And rather than just defining it from the outset, what I think, I think it's best for us to observe this doctrine throughout Scripture and then come back around and then formulate a definition based on our observations. And I don't think we're going to get there today. Like I said, this is a vast doctrine. However, to whet our appetite in the meantime, I'd like to give you two quotes from men on whom we we stand on their shoulders now. The first is John Murray. 
John Murray says, union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only in its application, but also in its once for all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. Indeed, the whole process of salvation has its origin in one phrase of union with Christ, one phase of union with Christ, and salvation has in view the realization of other phases of union with Christ. Every aspect, you pick any part of our redemption, any part of of the planning of it, of the accomplishing of it, of the application of it, and every single aspect is in one glorious person, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A.W. Pink likewise says, the subject of spiritual union is the most important, the most profound, and yet the most blessed of any that is set forth in the sacred scriptures. And yet, sad to say, there is hardly any which is now more generally neglected. The very expression, spiritual union, is unknown in most professing Christian circles. And even where it is employed, it is given such a protracted meaning as to take in only a fragment of its precious truth. Many of us have not heard a whole lot of teaching on our union with Christ. And if we surveyed the theological and ecclesiastical landscape of the area in which we live, we would find that it's hardly ever touched upon. And so many people are settling for things like Jesus is real. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Settling at the very bottom of the barrel. Rather than grasping for these glorious truths that for centuries have been expounded upon by Christ's people. So what I want to do today is I only just want to introduce the doctrine. I just want to introduce the doctrine. This this is easily something that we could go through for years, just looking at our union with Christ. So what I want to do is just introduce it. And I want to do that by introducing three fundamental components of the believer's union with Christ. Three fundamental components of the believer's union with Christ. I first want to look at The basis of the union. The basis of the union. Second, I'd like us to look at the benefits of the union. The benefits of the union. And Lord willing. Third and finally, I'd like us to look at the burden of the union. The burden of the union. Basis. Benefits, burden. What is the basis? What what are the grounds on which we have a union with Christ? Well, it's Christ's redemption. And I think it's first important to note that before we were in Christ, what were we? We were sinners. We were sons of disobedience. We were dead. I mean, we see this in Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead. We were children of wrath. We were sons of Satan. It says, dead in your trespasses and sins. Literally, and you being dead, existing in this sphere of death. And notice that he has trespasses and sins. He's wrapping up 
the sins of commission, sins of omission. He's saying, by nature, you're a sinner. I think it's important for us to recognize that anyone who is in Adam is not a sinner because he or she sins. But he or she sins because at the very core of their being, they are a sinner. United to Adam, doing the works of Adam after his likeness and being children of Satan. And we too were there. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 5 of Ephesians 2 says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, we were made alive together with Christ. Pure grace. Pure grace. We were separate and without God. You notice in Ephesians 2.12, we're called to remember And in verse 11, especially us who are Gentiles. You were at that time separate from Christ. So there was a time when we were not united to Christ, but we were in Adam. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ, we've been brought near by his blood. We see something similar, if you'll turn with me, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And let's just start at verse 6. And let's just slowly meander through this. Here we're going to see quite clearly our, our union in Adam versus our union in Christ. This is the glorious news of the gospel. Our union in Adam, we were by nature children of wrath. And the great work of God being united to Christ. Having the rights and privileges of sonship. Just thinking about that is exciting. We are owed nothing. Except what we've earned. And what have we earned? The wages of sin is death. But God has been gracious to us, exceedingly gracious to us. To the point where if you are in Christ this morning, you can say, I have the right to be called a child of God. Not because of what I've done, but by virtue of my vital union with Christ. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice what he's saying there. We were ungodly. Not only were we ungodly, but also we were helpless. This is not something that that we could do. A proper, clear reading of scripture will tear to shreds any of the Arminian persuasion. Because what you do with an Arminian persuasion is you cripple the Christ you claim to worship. Because then he only came to make people savable. And then you must add something to that. No, friends, that's not what we believe because that's not what the Bible teaches. 
It teaches that he is an effectual savior. He is a perfect savior. It is a once for all sacrifice. Christ accomplished it. We were helpless. And it's imputed to us by faith. Verse seven, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. Keep in mind that the us there is the believers. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because we were helpless. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. You see this, we're getting, getting into it. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. We're saved through Christ. And then here is a beautiful Romans 5.10. <clears throat> For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And Lord willing, get to this, but this is very similar to 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Theologians call that great exchange. Our sin is imputed to Christ. He being free from sin, paid that penalty. And we, having no righteousness have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Sins removed, righteousness imputed. That's what's necessary to get into heaven. Not just sinlessness, but also righteous. That's what justification is. You might've heard that old saying, justification is just as if I never sinned. No, that's not enough. That is not enough. You must also be righteous. And that's what Romans 5.10 is telling us. Shall be saved by his life. This should make us think of what? When, when Jesus is going to begin his ministry. He's going to get baptized. John the immerser. John the dunker. We call John the Baptist. John says, no, 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 no. You're, you're supposed to baptize me. And Jesus said to him, what? Permit it at this time, for it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. From the beginning, Jesus goes under, undertakes a baptism of repentance in order to identify with his people. A man born of a woman, born under the law, Galatians tells us, so that he would fulfill the law, not only set it aside through its fulfillment and establishing a new covenant, but also having that righteousness in his person, specifically in his humanity, so that it could be properly imputed to us. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life or in his life. And he lives. He lives. Not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. It just keeps getting better. 
Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world. Who do you think that is? Adam. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed. Well, there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. We see that very clearly. Adam begot a son and he lived so and so many years and he died and he died and he died. Genesis five, the graveyard and he died and he died and he died. Enoch walked with God. God took him for he was not, but then everyone else and he died and he died. All of humanity. And then we see the flood. We see sin spreading. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift Paul says is not like the transgression for if by the transgression of the one, the many died much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ abound to the many. The gift is not like that, which came through the one who sinned for on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Notice verse 18. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. This is our union with Adam. Even so, through the one act of righteousness, namely his life, there resulted justification of life to all men. What's Paul saying here? Is Paul the first universalist? Saying, don't worry, everything's going to be okay in the end. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. I know Adam messed up, but Christ came and it doesn't matter if you believe in him or not. You're only going to be judged based on the light that you've been given And in the end, it's all going to be okay. Is that what Paul's teaching here? Just by way of side note, everyone will be judged based on the light that they've been given. And Romans 1 tells us how much light that is. God has made himself evident to them and they refused to give him the glory and the honor due his name. What happens to someone who dies without hearing the gospel? They go to hell. Why do they go to hell? Because the wages of sin is death. This is why it's so important that we not just stay in our tiny little circles but that we get out and we talk to people about Jesus Christ. Because they're already doomed because of their sin. They're without God. They're without hope and they're helpless. Just like we were. It's incumbent upon us to love them enough to tell them the truth in love. 
It's one of the main reasons why we're still here. Because Christ is worthy. And there are people that will yet respond to that message. Because God has ordained it would be so. So what's Paul saying here? In verse 18. He's saying everyone that's in Adam is condemned. And everyone that's in Christ is justified. Not just free from sin, but free from sin and its penalty, imputed, credited to our account, not infused within us. And righteousness also applied, credited, imputed, not infused within us. So if you're in Christ, you have justification. If you're in Adam, you have condemnation. Is there a third option? No. There is no other option. You're either a child of Satan or you are a child of God. That's it. There is no neutral ground. Verse 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. It's interesting. This is where people cry out, this is not fair. I didn't sign up for this. It's not fair that Adam sinned and I have to pay for it. Short response to that, if you don't like it, you can go create your own world and you can give it the rules that you want and you can populate it with the people you want and you can do things the way that you want. We're clay pots at best. The interesting thing though is we we don't have a problem with this in other spheres of life. When you watch a football game and somebody, somebody commits pass interference to the defense does pass interference and so the offense gets to move up to that spot where the pass interference was committed, as if the, the receiver had caught the catch. What do you say then? Well, it's not fair that, it's not fair that the whole team has to move back, that, that everybody on the team, and there's only one person that committed a penalty, or what about a false start on the offense, and they all have to move back? It's not fair that they all have to move back. It should just be that tackle that did the false start. He should move back five yards. Everybody else should get to stay. It's not fair that it's applied to everyone. Do you do that? No. But we have a problem with it here. Why? Because of hardness of heart. We have a problem with authority and we don't want to submit. This is God's creation. He gets to do with it what he pleases. He gets to raise up leaders and bring down leaders. And we should praise him because he is gracious, because he has called us to Christ. You should be thankful if you're not in Christ that you have this opportunity to hear the gospel. There are many around this world that do not have this opportunity. So is it fair? No. But here's the line where it's not fair. 
that we're not condemned who are in Christ. That's why it's not fair. It's mercy. It's grace. We all deserve to be condemned. We've all sinned. We've shown proof that we are Adam's descendants, that he is our federal head, and that his transgression has been imputed to us, and that we bear his corruption. Verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see the big picture that Paul's been making here. There are two federal heads. There are two representatives. There is one who is Adam. And this this is why we don't believe in uh, what's called seminal headship. That Adam, that the sin is just passed on, the guilt is passed on from person to person through marriage and children. Because it would have to be equal on both sides. That's not how it goes. It's imputed. The guilt is imputed to us by nature of our creatureliness, by nature of our humanity. Because otherwise, we'd all have to be Christ's children through his wife and their children, of which he did not have one, because his bride is the the church, the bride of Christ. So federal headship, representative headship, Adam and Christ. No middle ground. And because of God's grace abounding, we have been brought out of union with Adam into union with Christ. Chapter 6. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? He's picking back up from what he hinted at the beginning of chapter 3, that some people have slanderously reported him as saying, keep on sinning so that grace will abound. He says, shall we do that? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Just by way of side note, as you're walking your Christian life and you've been doing it for a while, you should have accusations coming against you from other Christians. And the accusations should be this. On the one hand, you're a legalist. And then on the other hand, you're an antinomian. You act as if there is no law. The person that's faithfully walking the the biblical middle ground it's sure to find accusations on both sides of that. Oh, you, you, what, you, you keep the commandments? We're free in Christ. We don't have any commandments. Except for Jesus said, make disciples teaching them all that I, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We want these accusations. Not that we're seeking them, but they're good markers to let us know that we're on the biblical center. When some people are saying, Oh, you're an antinomian. Some people are saying, oh, you're a legalist. People here were charging Paul with being an antinomian. Because you know what? The truth of it is, if you're a Christian, you can do whatever you want. And that's the Christian life. Whatever you want. And you know what you'll do? You'll live your life to the glory of God out of the overflow of your heart and your love for Christ. So in that, you do whatever you want because you have a new heart. This is what Paul's getting into. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know? Notice that there's a premise here. There's a priority that he's placing on knowing, saying you should have known this, that all of us who have been baptized, immersed into Christ, 
This is where sprinkling falls short. Immersed into Christ have been immersed into his death. So he's saying, let me, let me dig a little bit deeper into this union. There's death and condemnation with your union with Adam, but grace has superabounded because your sins have abounded. Grace has superabounded above even that in your union with Christ. And so the wages of sin is death. You have died because you've been united with Christ and he has died. Verse four, there's a finality to this. You've been buried with him through baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the, the outworking of his power on display, the glory of the father. So we too might walk in newness of life. Why? Because we've been changed from the inside out by nature of what? For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So we have, we're new creatures on the inside. We still carry around this body of death, but that is a guaranteed goner because when we look at Christ, he doesn't have that. Knowing this, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him. You hear all this united union with him. Crucified. What does that mean? Is that a slap on the wrist? Is that deathly ill? No, there's more finality. It's dead. Crucified with him. In order that, here's the purpose, our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. If you're in Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin. You don't have to obey. You don't have to submit to that sin. You know, sometimes when, when you're doing whatever it is that you do and you feel that temptation, and then it starts to build and it starts to build and it starts to build, and finally you just do what? You resolve in your mind to give in. Because you know, if I just give in to this, then this pressure is going to be gone. You don't have to give in to it because you're not a slave to it. In fact, you shouldn't. You have the power to overcome it. So Paul's saying, you don't just sin knowing that, oh, well, grace is going to abound in this. You go back to your union with Christ and the power that's found therein. Because he says in verse seven, he who has died is freed from sin. Have you died? Have you been crucified with Christ? As Paul says, so it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now, if we have died, verse eight, with Christ, with him, with Christ, in Christ, through Christ. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing again, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again for death is no longer master over him for the death that he died. He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so here's our first command. As you recall in the book of Romans reckon, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I, I love the way that Lloyd Jones explains this. When you go to somebody, you go to a grown man and he's whining about something and you tell him, 
Don't be a baby. Quit being a baby. Are you saying in that moment, you are an infantile individual that is eight pounds, six ounces, and being fed on milk and formula and things of that nature? No, you're saying you you used to be a baby, but you're not anymore, but you're acting like it. And so stop acting like you're not, because that's not you anymore. Start acting like you are. You're a man. Buck up. Right? That's what Paul's saying here. You're not a sinner by nature anymore. You don't have to submit to sin. You're not a slave of sin. In fact, you're a slave of righteousness. You've been bought with the most precious price ever. So you need to act like it. Therefore, verse 12, do not, another command, let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, its desires. And again, command, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present, command, yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. You're not under the law, but under grace. We have been brought out of this condemnation. We've been brought out of this slavery, this this slave market of sin. We have been redeemed and transferred from Adam into Christ. We're part of a new family. We've been adopted. Now, we need to live like it. We have been united to another. Now, we need to live like it. Or look with me also, 2 Corinthians Five. Second Corinthians five. We're still looking here at the basis, the grounds on which we have this union with Christ. We're seeing that it's, it's Christ's life. It's his work. It's his person. It's his death. It's his resurrection. All of these things coming together have transferred us from our union with Adam, bought us out, redeemed us out by paying our debt, which was what? Death, eternal death, for our sins against an eternal God. And now we're in Christ and we no longer are slaves to that. Second Corinthians five. Let's, um, let's start in 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Just by way of side note right there. Who's Paul talking about? We know he's talking to Second Corinthians. He's talking to those at the church of Corinth. He's talking about false teachers. What's one good way to spy out a false teacher. They take pride in appearance, but not in heart. External works of religiosity, like the Pharisees, like the Roman Catholic gathering of people, like Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, all of these people, what do they do? They pride themselves on the outworking. But there is no heart in it. 
And unfortunately, many that would call themselves Protestant or evangelicals in these categories do the same thing. I think Thomas Watson has some wise words, if that's you. The hypocrite deceives others while he lives, but he deceives himself when he dies. How do you spot, what's one way to spot a false teacher? He takes pride in appearance and not in heart. Paul continues on, for if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're a sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ, this is Christ's love for us, our love for him, Christ's love for us, controls us. You remember, this is that constraining in. You go to Louisville Park, you go to that area where there's a big lawn where the bathrooms are, and, and you can go swimming there. There's a little beach, and the water just moves so slow, you can hardly even tell it's moving. But right near the entrance, or when you're passing over the bridge of Louisville Park, you see, you see the white, because it's sped up. It's actually moving. It's the same river. Why, why does it look different in two different spots? Because further down the river there, by the entrance of Louisville Park, it's being constrained. From the bottom up, from the sides in. And so you've got the same mass of water, but now channeled through a smaller space. That's what this word is. It's the love of Christ constraining and controlling us, hemming us in on all sides so that we are compelled by his love. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore, what? All died. All those for whom Christ died have died in Christ because he has paid their penalty. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. That's, that's, not, that's, that's your old family. Satan did what? He did what he wanted to do. He saw things, he's like, this is what I want to do. I want that. This should be mine. And he enacted upon that. And we spent our whole lives outside of Christ, pursuing our own desires, lusts of the flesh and of the eyes and the pride of life. It's not to be that anymore. We're slaves of righteousness. We're slaves of love now. We no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again, on their behalf or in their place, in their stead. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him in this way no longer. Just another side note. We see the, all the things that are going on with the riots and the protests. And I think there's a huge distinction between the two that the media is not making, but should be. What does this verse tell us? We don't regard people. We don't recognize them according to the flesh. Christ came to save a people for his own possession from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It's not the outward appearance that matters. That's what the false teachers say. That's what society is telling us. But that's not what we as Christians do. There should be 
No partiality within the church. But unfortunately, there is a lot of partiality, isn't there? Sometimes you have old people that don't want to spend time with young people. Young people that don't want to spend time with old people. People that are rich, not wanting to spend time with people that are poor. This is nothing new. People of different ethnicities, not wanting to fellowship with other people of other ethnicities. Not wanting to put yourself in a position where you might accidentally or be compelled by your conscience to have to serve someone else that you really don't want to serve because it's not really convenient to you. And so what do we do? We create divisions within the church and little cliques and little circles. I'm not saying that, that it's, it's wrong to have some friends that are closer than others. That's not what I'm saying. But who are you excluding from these little groups Who is it that Christ says, this person is so special to me that I died for them. But you're going to stand there and say, I don't care about that. This is my clique. Because of what? Because of some external observation or some difference. We regard no one according to the flesh. Verse 7, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, united to Christ, he is what? New. A new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he did more than that, didn't he? He gave us this ministry of reconciliation. You've been saved. Now, here are your orders. Here are your orders. Namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Why? Because they were already paid in Christ. They cannot be charged again. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see that there, God has reconciled the people in Christ. Who are we to say these people can't participate in X, Y, Z? Because of some superficial reason. This is one of the reasons why the sin of partiality is so devilish. And it's not just based on race. There's all kinds of ways that we find to segregate and divide people. And if you're doing that, If you're in this church or you're listening to this message and you're doing that, do you know what the Bible says? If you are a Christian, if you have left your first love, you have left your first love. Because when Christ left, what did he say? A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's not a new commandment, is it? There's a new force to it. It's been exemplified and Christ dwells in his people. Why do you think 
union with Christ is so huge with Paul. We would look at Ephesians, Romans, and now 2 Corinthians. Why do you think that's so huge with him? Because he persecuted the church unto death. And when he got saved, what did Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Christ left, he says, I'll know if you love me, 1 John, by how you treat my people. If you're not loving Christ's people, if they're not on the top of your list, even above your family members that are not saved, and those in your extended family that are not saved, if you've got someone else on the top of that list on a societal plane, you're in sin. You think that sounds too harsh? What did Jesus say? Hey, your mom and your brothers are here and they're trying to talk to you. What did Jesus say? Who are my mother and my brothers? I'll tell you who. The one who does the will of God. You've been brought out of one family into another. You're not in Adam anymore. You're in Christ. This is a new family. This is a new nature. There's new family rules. There's new family likenesses. This is the basis, the basis of our union with Christ. Let's turn our attention now briefly to what are some, some of our benefits of our union with Christ. Some of our benefits of our union with Christ. Well, the first one that I seems, seems pretty obvious because we are going through Ephesians is election. Election is a benefit of being united to Christ. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Justification. Romans 3.24, justification. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in who? Who do you think it's going to say? Christ Jesus. Peace with God. Peace with God. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal life. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is it only looking forward? Are there any benefits to this present life? Or is it just something that we have to wait for until that day? Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. We're alive right now. We have present life. It's another benefit. We have present life. We're not zombies. We used to be zombies. The walking dead. Ephesians 2.1. And you being dead. It's that word ontos from where we get ontology. Study of being. Sanctification. Another benefit. 1 Corinthians 1.2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in 
Christ Jesus. Saints, by calling with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. You see, Paul's even recognizing there's not just this unity that we have in the sanctification that comes from being united with Christ, but there's a unity that we have all with one another because we're all united in Christ. So it, it kind of begs the question. If Jesus Christ were here with us right now, would you change the way that you live? Would you, would you try and w- wait in line to spend time with him? Would you try to pursue him? Would, would you make some sacrifices maybe to your lunch or some other things that you had going on so that you could spend some time with him? Would you? If Jesus walked through in the flesh these doors right now and we recognize that it was him, what would you give up? to spend a few minutes with him. That's how you measure how you're supposed to love one another. Because Christ dwells in all of our hearts by faith. And we're united to him. And we have Christ in us, the hope of glory, Paul tells us in Colossians 1. God's grace is a a benefit of our union with Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.4 I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus. The removal of the veil. As if like we see when Paul and the scales are removed from his eyes and he finally gets to see physically a removal of our, of our spiritual veil by which we would look at the word and we would see these things of God and we would go, Oh, that's ridiculous. No, you know, I think there's a God. I'm not going to deny that. But all of this exclusivity and narrowness, no. Removal of the veil, 2 Corinthians 3.14. But their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, speaking of the, the Jews, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Each one of us have had veils. And you know that God has his elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Even those that are Jewish, he has his people there. And I'm going to go so far as to say, even now, even though I don't think that this is right now the end, when there's going to be that restoration of all Israel being saved, even now, they need that veil lifted. And it only happens in Christ. Our adoption, Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us into adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to his good pleasure. Our inheritance, Ephesians 1.11, in whom we also have obtained an inheritance because we've been predestined according to the good pleasure of his will, the counsel of his will, his purpose. Our communication and comprehension capital. 1 Corinthians 1, 4, and 5, I thank my God concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. We read that earlier, but then verse 5, that in everything you were enriched in him, that is Christ, in all speech, and knowledge. That's part of our union with Christ. We have this capital, this richness of communication and understanding and comprehension of knowledge. In fact, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. Colossians 2, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Circumcision of the flesh, Colossians 2, 11, 
In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We have bold access to our father. Second Corinthians 5.21, we have an alien righteousness. Ephesians 3.12, our bold access is in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. An alien righteousness, the removal of our transgressions, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Indeed, every single spiritual blessing is in what? In Christ. Ephesians 1.3. This is just a small fraction of the benefits and the blessings that we have in Christ. And this is just looking at what Paul wrote. We haven't looked at any of the other writers of scripture yet. We've just barely grazed at the surface of some of Paul's writings. Well, what are the burdens? Third, what are the burdens? We've looked at what is the basis of our union with Christ. We've looked at what are the benefits of our union with Christ. What are the burdens of our union with Christ? And you probably are thinking, what? Why would you use that word? Some of you are thinking, I know why you're using that word. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We still have a burden to carry. We still have a cross to bear. But it's light. And so thinking through that, as we read through just some of these, again, skimming the surface, what I want you to do is not think about your neighbor, to not think about your parent, to not think about your child, to not think about your sibling, to not think about your coworker. I want you to think about yourself prayerfully. And I want you to examine your heart and ask yourself, Is this a light burden for me? Is this a light burden for me? What are the burdens of those united with Christ? Our lives display his victory. Our lives display Christ's victory. 2 Corinthians 2.14 But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Do you live your life displaying Christ's victory? Knowing that it is a glorious burden to bear. We are Christ's representatives. As we read earlier, 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. Again, the question isn't, Are you or aren't you an ambassador? It's what kind of ambassador are you? Just like you who are fathers. What kind of a husband and father are you? It's not, are you a husband or a father, but what kind? Same with you mothers. What kind of a wife and mother are you? Children. What kind of a child are you? What kind of an ambassador are you for Christ? How do you 
How do you gloriously carry this victorious burden? Another burden, we are, we are to be braggers. Doesn't sound right, does it? We're to be show-offs. Braggers. Boasting. Romans 15, 17. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. And just because that might have rubbed some people the wrong way, I brought a second witness. 1 Corinthians 1, 31, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We are to be disciple-oriented. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him admonishing most men and teaching some men with some wisdom. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And I want to put it to you who are here and you who are at home. How have you been doing knowing that the command is to make disciples in season and out of season, how have you been doing during this quarantine with discipleship? And I'm not just talking about with your families, although that is important. But that's not what this verse says. This verse says every man. Have you used this as a spiritual vacation? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't apply when the government says it doesn't apply. Or is this a gloriously light and joyful burden to bear? Making disciples, proclaiming Christ so that we may present every man complete in Christ. We are to spend, along that same note, and be spent for the elect. We are to spend and be spent for the elect. First Corinthians nine, one Paul even says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus? Our Lord, are you not my work in the Lord? He's talking about people. when he says my work there are not Corinthians are not you Corinthians, you people, my work in the Lord. And I'm willing to give up all of these liberties so that I can serve you because my goal is to present you complete in Christ. That Christ would be manifested through you. That people would see you and they would see the triumph of Christ in your lives. We are to welcome Christians that are members of other churches. I know that we here at Masters Bible Church have done a great job at that. I, I, I'm always hearing compliments about about how loving and how gracious and how hospitable everyone here is. And that's just, that just warms my heart and warms my soul. But we don't want to grow slack. We want to excel still more. And we do want to remember that we are to welcome Christians that are members of other churches. We don't want to be like this us for and no more kind of mentality, which we're not. But Romans 16 two, when Paul is writing to the Romans, he says that you receive her Phoebe in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever matters she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. So while we do recognize membership in local churches, we also recognize that there is the church universal. That's why when we do commune, such as today, we don't do as some churches do, where only members of this church may take communion. But it's 
It's all members of Christ in good standing that may take the Lord's table. We are to rejoice in Christ. Philippians 3, 1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. We are to stand firm in Christ. Philippians 4, 1, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. We are to rely on Christ's strength. Ephesians 6, 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, not our own strength, but in that of Christ. And we are to live in reconciliation with one another. Philippians 4, 2. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Could you imagine having your names written down in scripture, but, but not having them written down in scripture for something heroic, but being these two ladies, not living in harmony. And now you are inscripturated examples for all time. Did you know that God watches us? He sees us, everything is naked and laid bare, that the angels observe us because they long to peer into what this salvation looks like. That the demons watch us too. Are we living in triumph? Not because of us, not because we've achieved some higher victory and some false sanctification, but because Christ has been victorious and we are united to Christ. We are in Christ. And so our goal is reconciliation. Our goal is unity in the Lord. Well, this is just a few aspects of our union with Christ. It's my hope and prayer that we'll be able to look at many more, such as the different illustrations that are used for our union with Christ, the different metaphors that are used. And there's so much that we have, and I don't intend to go dig down in every nook and cranny, but I think looking at this at this point, as we're going through Ephesians chapter one, is going to be so pivotal for us so that we have the right categories to place these things in. Because we're looking right now at this work of Christ. It is this work of Christ that is the basis of our union with him. We recognize it's been planned out before the foundation of the world, but we weren't brought into union with him. Until when? Until we exercised by faith, received his Redemptive work. It's perfect work. What beautiful truth. So now my question for you. How are you going to apply this to your life? Who are those precious souls, especially here at Master's Bible Church, that you have neglected or that you have harmed Who are those precious souls outside of Master's Bible Church that maybe you have neglected or maybe you have harmed? And what areas of your life are you holding back from God? Are you saying, oh, Lord, I'm going to give you all of this. It's 95%. I'm giving you the bulk. Just keeping this 5% for me. You're not living and putting Christ on display 
and showing the triumph of Christ. We are his prized possessions. We are to be paraded through the streets. We are those enemies that have been conquered and belong to Christ. So people should see us and praise him. Should praise him. And obviously I'm not advocating for preach the gospel and when necessary use words. Right? We must use words, but our lives must also match. So who are those, who are those people in Master's Bible Church that you have either neglected, not allowed to participate with you? And I recognize if there's a men's group, that's a men's group. If there's a women's group, that's a women's group. That's a biblical distinction. That's not showing partiality. But within these clear-cut biblical distinctions, where are you creating barriers that God has not created barriers and showing partiality when you've been called by a God who does not show partiality, who in fact hates partiality? We have to remember that we have been united in Christ, that there is no division in Christ, that we have been brought together to be made one new man collectively because we are his body. So let us Starting now. And if you've been doing this, great. Excel still more. Grab someone else. If you've got more time to help disciple someone else and help encourage them in that, come alongside someone else. You know what would be amazing to see? It'd be amazing to see that those that are older in the faith having a desire to disciple those that are younger in the faith may sound like a crazy idea that I just made up all on my own, but that's what we see in the Bible. And you may be saying, I'm not adequate. And you'd be right. You're not adequate. But it doesn't say, if you're adequate, then do these things, does it? It's out of the joy of our heart, the overflow of the love that we have and recognizing we have been united. Look around. These are the people that we're going to be spending an eternity with. We're going to be in heaven, worshiping Christ together. And obviously there's going to be many more people too. There's going to be more, but not less than every one of us who's in this room, who is in Christ. Not less than that. And so how can we live to show Christ? We love him. Christ whom we have not seen by loving those who are in Christ and who Christ is in them that we can see now. Father, Lord, make these truths effectual in our heart, in our lives. Let us live them out and carry these joyous and glorious burdens that you've given to us. For they are sweet and they are light. Let us live in such a way that you receive all honor, praise, and glory in Christ. Amen.